Today we are looking at Jesus and his confrontation with the Sadducees. And I'm going to talk in a few minutes about the difference between the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and how they differ. But the title of our message is Life After Death in the Old Testament, or more specifically, the resurrection of believers in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard someone say that the revelation comes through the Bible slowly and that the Old Testament really didn't develop life after death. I heard that before. I've heard that especially when it comes to teachings on hell. They'll look back at the Old Testament and say, there's not really a lot in the Old Testament about hell because it didn't develop things about life after death. And then they'll give a couple of passages that I want to start with today that, that make you question, huh, well, did they believe that? Why is it in the scripture? And was it really true? And did the Old Testament teach life after death? Then we'll see the conflict that they had and what we can learn from it as we get into these things. So let's start with Luke 20. I just want to read a part of verse one, and then we'll break down a couple things here. So Luke 20, 27 says, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Essenes, the chief priests, the elders all believed in a resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were priests. The word Sadducee comes from the word Zadok. You remember that Zadok was the priest under Solomon. So they believed during the time of Jesus that their lineage was from Zadok and they were taught that there was no resurrection, that there were no spirit beings. They were taught by their parents that these things were true as they were preparing them to be priests. Not only were the Sadducees priests, they were the high priest and they were the chief priests. These are the aristocrats of Jerusalem. They were extremely wealthy. They were extremely well known and they were very prideful. And they believed that they had the truth in that there was no resurrection. Paul is standing before the Pharisees in the book of Acts, I mean, excuse me, standing before the Sanhedrin. There are 72 leaders that are leading the, the Jewish part of Jerusalem and he's standing before them. And the Bible says he notes that there are Pharisees and Sadducees there. And so he says to them, brethren, I stand before you today accused because I have taught the resurrection. And they started fighting amongst themselves. The Pharisees went after the Sadducees, Sadducees went after the Pharisees and it became such a tumult that the, the centurion went in and rescued Paul out from them because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And it says it right there. The Sadducees didn't believe in it. So they did not believe in it. The Pharisees, there were a lot more of them. You can imagine that if this is the chief priest, if it's the, if it's the um, high priest who are Sadducees, then there's only a few of them. And Again, they're very wealthy and they would, they would dress like they were wealthy. We get this from Josephus, who interestingly enough was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a person that under, after the Maccabean revolt, which they freed themselves from the Greeks, had a few years of freedom that went under the Romans. And in the Maccabean revolt, there was a group of people who set themselves apart. They said, we are now going to set ourselves apart to God. And they became known as the Pharisees. Josephus said that there were 6,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. That's a lot. There were a lot of Pharisees, very few Sadducees. And they were opposed to one another. They were only agreed in their hatred of Christ and wanting to destroy him. 
And um, then there were the scribes. Now, a scribe could be a Pharisee. A scribe was someone who was entrusted with the word of God. They taught it. They protected it. They made sure that false teachings weren't out there. They wrote it. They copied it. That's where their name scribe comes from. But it's much deeper. They were the theologians of their day. And they were really well liked by the people. The people didn't necessarily like the Pharisees. The people didn't necessarily like the Sadducees. But the people liked the scribes because they knew the word of God really well. In fact, there's a story that's told about a, uh, a, um, uh, a I don't want to say parade, but uh, they, they were making their way uh, to the temple in a parade because I can't think of the other word. And the high priest was there and there were some scribes who were there, well-known scribes. And that when the people who were with the high priest heard that this particular scribe was there, they left the high priest and they ran back to go see the scribe, which was an offense to the high priest. So we know the, the words right there. It's driving me nuts. What word am I looking for? I'm looking for... Recession. No. Recession is what happens in the economy. Procession. Thank you. I had it as an R. Recession. That's how it happens. To, it's happening right now. Recession. Uh, procession. Thank you. Why does it drive me so crazy? Why can't I go on if I lose something like that? I just ignore it. They were on a parade. Woo. Big giant balloons flying around. So um, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And this was an aberrant teaching in Judaism. Uh, an aberrant teaching would be something that isn't mainline. There were mainline teachings in Judaism. Most people in Judaism believed it, but there were aberrant teachings. And this just means that they were on the outskirts. They were on the outside of it. There is a main body of work in Christianity, and we all agree on certain things, but there are some aberrant teachings. And you may have been taught an aberrant teaching while you were growing up, depending on what church you grew up in. They might have had an aberrant teaching to it. These Sadducees had an aberrant teaching. And so they come to Jesus because they don't believe in the resurrection and they challenge him on the resurrection. Now, why would these Sadducees not believe in a resurrection? I have two reasons for you. Number one, there's a couple of passages in the Bible that are just a couple. And they say that you don't remember after you die. I'm going to read them to you here in a moment. But number two, there is no resurrection taught in the first five books of the Pentateuch. And they put most of the weight in the first five books of the Pentateuch. And so they argued, since there's no resurrection in the first five books, then there isn't any resurrection at all. It's that argument from silence. If the Bible doesn't say it, then it's not true. It, it, there can be a point where you go, that never happened in the book of Acts. That's never brought up in the, in the epistles. And so we don't believe that. But an argument from silence is always weak. It's always the weakest of the arguments. If you can find a passage that directly supports your view or, or speaks against somebody that has a false view, that's very strong. An argument from silence is very weak. So let's take a look at a couple of the passages that they used, along with saying that it's not found in the Pentateuch. Ecclesiastes 9.5. You remember that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. Solomon wrote it to tell you that living life apart from God is useless. Anything, if you are not living for God, it's vain. You're going to end up wasting your life. It's vanity. Uh, some one translation calls it popcorn. Popcorn, popcorn, everything is popcorn. 
Solomon said, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Whether it's living for laughter, living for money, living for building things for, 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 for uh, professional success, living for pleasure, living for sex. Solomon had 400 concubines and 300 wives. Had 700 women that he could go sleep with. And at the end of it all, he said, it's all vain. In the middle of this, he says this in Ecclesiastes 9, 5. For the living, this is, and, and uh, Ecclesiastes is also a poetic book. So you find a lot of these kind of poetic statements in it. So he says, the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. So it's kind of like this connection and kind of a, a quippy little thing to say. The living have the knowledge that they're going to die, but once you die, you don't know nothing. So that's kind of, he's, he's kind of, that's a, a circular loop of vanity. You know you're going to die, and when you die, you don't know anything. And so they took that verse and said, see, when you die, you don't know anything. You just die and you're gone. Now, this is an obscure verse that goes against the body of work in the Old Testament that tells us that there is a resurrection, and they build their doctrine on that. This is most false teaching, maybe even all false teaching. There's one verse that somebody grabs onto. There's a verse in the Bible that says, Women are saved by childbearing. And so there are people who go, well, women are saved when they have children. There's groups of people that believe that you as a woman find your value in having children. Not that your value is in Christ, but in having children. And, and, Jesus, and, and God said, be fruitful and multiply the earth. And he never rescinded that. So unless you're fruitful and have a whole bunch of children, then you're really not serving God. What about women who can't have children? What about the gift of celibacy that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he said that's a greater honor to have a gift where you set aside marriage and you have a gift of celibacy to give unto God. Is there any self-worth in that if women are saved by childbearing? And then you go, well, what does it mean then? The Bible says women are saved by childbearing. Men are saved by faith in Christ, but women are saved by childbearing. And I'm like, that's just taking this verse and going against the body of how people are saved. Women are saved by childbearing. Why does it say that? Because in the curse Women were cursed with pain during childbearing. Gals, just get Eve when you get to heaven because she was the reason you're pain in childbearing. And then it says the Messiah came through a woman. The Messiah came into the world born of a woman through the pain of childbearing in the curse so that women were saved by childbearing. It brought the Messiah into the world. It doesn't have anything to do with the way you go to heaven. I've had a kid. I'm going to make it to heaven. You haven't had any children. I'm sorry. You can't make it to heaven. Another one is baptismal regeneration. They'll say the miracle of salvation happens when you're baptized. Water baptism. The Church of Christ believes this. Seventh-day Adventists believe this. And there's two passages they use. One of them says we have an anti-type which saves us baptism. And then they go, there it is. How can you argue against us? An anti-type which saves is baptism. You've got to be baptized to be saved. Except that the word baptism means immersed. It doesn't just mean water baptism. It could be immersed in anything. And the Bible says that we have been baptized by Christ into the body of Christ. Jesus baptized us. He immersed us into the body of Christ so that we are together in one body. It's not talking about water baptism there at all. It doesn't say we have an anti-type which saves us water baptism. It says we have an anti-type which saves us baptism. So they take two obscure verses and they use those to ignore the whole body of passages that tell us if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 11, Jesus says, 
I am the resurrection and life. If you believe in me, you will not die. And even if you do die, you will live. He doesn't say if you believe in me and are baptized, there's, there's literally dozens, maybe even hundreds of verses that talk about faith in Christ, but two obscure passages that talk about baptism connected to salvation. And they will take those instead of figuring out what they mean, they'll now build their theology around them. So what does this passage mean? The, de the living know nothing, but the dead, or excuse me, the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. It goes on to say that very same verse, and they have no more reward for their memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred and their envy, they have no more. Neither will they have a share in anything done under the sun. In this section of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about those who don't follow God, who are trying to find fulfillment in the things of this world and that they are empty. They are vain. And so if you are living under the sun, you're going to go to the grave and you're going to know nothing in the grave. That's the teaching. In the same book, when he gets to the end of the book, the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes is when you're young, serve God because everything else is vanity. Don't go through it. Don't go out there and try everything because it's all vanity, but instead serve God while you're young. And then he gives a list of things that happen to those who serve God when they're young. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, after he says, when you're young, serve God, he says this, that your body, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. That's the grave. The dust of your body is going to return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. The same book that says that the dead know nothing is the same book that says your spirit is going to return to God. They just ignore that or don't take time to study it or try to just hang on to their one passage. Let me give you one more. There's other ones we could go to, but let me give you one more. They might have used Psalms 49, 15. This is David. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He will, no, nope, let me go to this other one. I want to go to Psalm 6, 5. This is David. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? These are the two passages people will use to try to say in the Old Testament they didn't believe in life after death. In the grave, there's no remembrance of you. And in the grave, who will give you thanks? So you go to the psalm. You read it in context. It's a short psalm. And David's pleading for his life. His enemies almost have him. His enemies want to kill him. He had great enemies. Saul, the king, was one of his enemies. When you have the king of Israel as your enemy, you got a real enemy. And so he says, God saved my life. This is Psalms 6. God saved my life. I call out to you for mercy. Save me. For what good is it if I die? For in death, there is no remembrance of you. I'm going to die and I'm not going to remember you. What good is it for me if I die? I'm not going to remember you. And in the grave, there's no thanks of you. In the grave. He's talking about the grave. If I die now and am buried, how am I going to continue to do what you want me to do? And how am I going to give you thanks for you delivering me? And so he's talking about that particularly. He's talking about the grave. So let me just give you a larger body of work that tells us in the Old Testament that there is a resurrection. And then when I talk about a resurrection, I'm talking about the Old Testament teaching us a full on resurrection. I'm not just talking about your soul and your spirit being with God afterwards. I mean, your body will rise from the dead, be transformed, and you will live with a body like Christ in the resurrection, in, in the resurrected period. Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Job 19, 25 and 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives. The Redeemer is Christ. And he shall stand at last on the earth. This is the oldest book in the Bible. 
and after my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. This oldest book in the Bible not only tells you that there's life after death, but that after his skin is destroyed, that he will be resurrected and see God in his flesh. Psalms 17, 15, this is David again. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness and shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. He knew that after he died, there's no more earthly struggles. There's no more flesh against the spirit and spirit against the flesh, but we will awake in righteousness and we will wake, awake in his likeness. The New Testament says, for when we see him, we will be like him. In Psalm 16, 9 through 11, David again says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices in rejoices. My flesh also rests in hope. His flesh has hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. The word Sheol, all it means is grave. That's what it is in the Old Testament. Sheol means grave. My soul will not be left in Sheol. And then he goes to the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David's not saying he's the Holy One. He's saying my soul won't be left in Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would rise from the dead. And even though he would die, he would not be corrupted, but would rise again from the dead. And we're told that in the New Testament with this verse, by the way, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hands or pleasures forevermore. So those are just three verses. And we see clearly that the Old Testament taught that there was a resurrection. Listen to God smack talking death in the book of Hosea. I love this verse. It's, it's Hosea 3, 13, 14. Hosea 13, 14. God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. To ransom is to buy back. So is redeem. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And then he says to death, O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God says to death, I'm going to completely and totally destroy you. Listen to this passage out of Isaiah 26, 19, talking about the resurrection. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. People who have died and have, uh, to dust to dust, right? People who have died, their body has gone back to dust. Rejoice, sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth will cast out the dead. That's the resurrection in Isaiah 500 years before the time of Christ. And you probably know this one. This is Daniel 12, 2. This is the first one I go to when I think that the Old Testament teaches resurrection. It says in Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. So there is a resurrection of those that are in Christ and a resurrection of those who are not in Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is called the first resurrection and the resurrection of the, those who aren't in Christ is called the second death. And you get that in the book of Revelation. So there is a resurrection for everyone clearly taught in scripture. So, so these two things allowed them to be able to believe this aberrant teaching and they ignored it and continued to teach their kids about it. So now we come to their question. So it says that the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection came to him and asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us 
that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother shall take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is just, it's weird to us. Moses taught them, and this is Deuteronomy 25, I think it's 5, 6, and 7, that if you marry a wife and you die with no children, that your brother is supposed to marry your wife and have a child for you. It's because of the land. You, as a brother, had a portion of your father's land. It was given to you. And when you died, it was assimilated by whoever was in charge. The closest relative assimilated your land. And they were supposed to marry your wife, have a child that you would give the land back to. Do you remember Onan in the Bible? He married a woman in the Leverite marriage and refused to have a child with her. I won't talk about details. You can look up the details yourself. And God killed him because he refused to keep the Leverite law. Now, this is the Leverite law. It's not the Levite law. I hear somebody teaching on it and said, it's the Levite law. It's like, no, it's Leverite. Leverite in Hebrew is brother-in-law. So when the woman's husband dies, she's supposed to marry her brother-in-law. That's the Leverite law. Now, we see it in the book of Ruth. Naomi's son dies, is married to Ruth. Ruth says to Naomi, your God will be my God and I will live with you. They go back to Israel and, the, and, and Ruth starts working in fields and she, and she goes back to Naomi and Naomi says, where were you working today at Ruth? And Ruth says, well, I was working in the field of Boaz. She goes, Boaz? Well, do exactly what I tell you and don't turn away from what I tell you to do because he's a relative. All of a sudden, there's the right of the Leverite that the land could be returned to Naomi. Naomi left and her land, when her husband and her son-in-law died, or yeah, when her husband and her son died, the land was taken from her and given to her relatives. But now if Ruth marries one of the relatives, the land's restored to Naomi. That's through the Leverite law. So she goes to Boaz, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, but Boaz says, yeah, I want to marry you, Ruth. But there's another relative who's closer. And I got to tell him first. So he goes to tell that guy. And that guy goes, I'm, I can't bring a Moabite girl home. My wife will kill me. I can't do it. And so he refuses and they marry and it redeems them. And if you didn't do this, and you get this in Deuteronomy 25 as well, if you, if you said, no, I don't want to marry her. I don't want to do it. Then you would go to the gate, the city gate. The leaders would be there. The woman would come, take off your shoe, spit in your face, and you would be known from then on out as the man who had a sandal removed. You were not keeping up your part of how God had established for women to be able, for families to be able to keep the land of their parents. All right, quick lesson on Leverite marriage. Hopefully you got it. So they say, Jesus told us to do this. And then in verse 29, here's their absurd story to defend their absurd position. It's an absurd position to believe that you are, that, that there's no resurrection because of the teaching of the Old Testament. It's an absurd position to believe that women are saved by giving birth to children. It's an absurd position to believe that just getting baptized is going to save you, that you can believe in Jesus and trust in him, but if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And so they will use absurd things to defend their position. Here's their absurd thing. Verse 29. Now, um, or excuse me, uh, where do I want to be? All right, so we want to go back to, uh, yeah, verse 29. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without a ch children. And the second took her as wife and died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. 
The first thing we got to ask is, what is this woman putting in her food? <laughs> that she's killed off all seven of her husbands. And this gal really did not want to be married. She's like, nope, boom, nope, boom, nope, boom. All seven of them die. And they all die childless. So here's their got you question. Therefore, in the resurrection, now Jesus knows they don't believe in the resurrection. They know they don't believe in the resurrection. But in the resurrection, whose wife is she? Because she had all seven, or because all seven had her as wife. Now, they think they've got him. This is, you can't have one woman and seven husbands living out all of eternity. So this, is, this can't be, so there can't be a resurrection from the dead. Notice the way they tried to defend it. They quoted scripture. Know that always with aberrant teachings, there are going to be people who quote scripture. Don't think they quoted scripture, it must be right. There will be a defense and sometimes they will just give passages. When, when, when I've listened to people defend their position on baptismal regeneration, they quote every passage in the Bible that talks about baptism. It has nothing to do with water baptism, but they quote it as if it's their evidence for them, when it's not. So these guys quoted scripture. Let me also say that when you're listening to a false teacher, sometimes I'll tell people, that guy doesn't teach the gospel. And they'll go, I was really ministered to by him. He spoke really well to me. He quoted scripture. I'll talk about the false teaching of the faith movement, that God wants you rich, that God never wants you sick. And I'll quote some passages. They'll be like, I went to, the, those, I went to their crusade and, I, and they, they, they quoted scripture. They, they spoke scripture. So, so do the Mormons. So the Jehovah Witnesses. So does every group that's out there that's religious in any way, shape or form. So did the Millerites in the 1800s. They had all kinds of weird beliefs. They quoted scripture. Just because someone quotes, the devil quotes scripture. The devil quoted scripture to Jesus when he tempted him. So don't think quoting scripture is somehow making it right. Makes the aberrant teaching right. They quoted scripture. So Jesus has two ways in which he answers them. First of all, Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain the age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. They are equal to the angels and the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, that's a hard saying. There's a lot in that verse that we're not going to cover, but it does say we're not married in heaven. Some say it's the process of being married, that if you're married here now, you're going to be married in heaven, but if you're in heaven, you're not given in marriage. You, you, you know, you get up there, you can't be married afterwards. But that doesn't make any sense to Jesus's argument. This one woman has seven husbands if marriages are translated up into heaven. So he says, when we get to heaven, we don't have, we're not married. Now, this is hard because we love our wives. And we love, you love your husbands. And it's difficult. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to have a special relationship with them. And by the way, there are some people who are happy that there's no marriage in heaven. I just want to, I know, you were thinking it. Okay, I know you were thinking it. So, it's just a bad joke, all right? I know you were thinking it. Some people are like, yes, yes. But we love our wives and we want to be with them. But marriage is for here on earth. It's an earthly thing. But the idea that we're going to get to heaven and not know them or have a special relationship with them, that we're not going to know our best friends, that we're not going to know our family, our children, our grandchildren. The, and people will ask me, when we get to heaven, will we know, you know, the people who we were here on earth with? No, we're going to be like, you look familiar. You were married to me 50 years. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Or there are tens of billions of people here. What's the chance that I got to know the best people? 
So I'm going to forget everybody I know and go find new friends. No, the relationships we are making here will be carried on up into heaven. And we will know those people that we have developed love with there, here, and we will love them in heaven. It's hard because we do love our wives and you love your husbands. It's a hard saying, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a special relationship, that you will know that you are married to them. You'll have a special relationship. You've had kids together. You still have kids together. There's still a special relationship that you have. So finally, Jesus gives their answer. And Jesus gives it out of the book of Exodus, part of the Pentateuch. They only believe the Pentateuch is really the word of God. All the other stuff could be God's word, but the Pentateuch is really God's word. So Jesus says this, but even Moses showed us in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. That's when Moses saw the burning bush on Mount Sinai, went to it to see why, why this bush burned and wasn't consumed. The angel of the Lord spoke to him, take off your sandals for you stand on holy ground. And then the angel of the Lord called him to go and to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so it says that he, in the burning bush passage, declared the dead were raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is the God, not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all are alive in him. So Jesus is making the point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive because he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning they are alive and not dead. Now, I don't know how the Sadducees responded, but I do know how the scribes did. Remember, the scribes were the theologians of their day. The scribes were the ones who were handled the scriptures. And they, they probably had had arguments with the Sadducees before and, and tried to find things in the Pentateuch to be able to point it out. So here's what the scribes say, verse 39. Then the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoke well. Jesus gained the respect of the scribes by finding in the Pentateuch a passage that spoke of life after death. But after this, they dared not question him anymore. So everybody was done questioning him because of that. Now, I don't know how the Sadducees responded. It doesn't say it. But I'm pretty sure they didn't go, you're right, Jesus. We need to go correct our kids who are, who are training to be priests. We need to let them know there's a resurrection. Why? Because pride, our pride doesn't allow us that something we've believed and we've been taught since the time that we're children could be wrong. And so our pride stands in the way. So you've got to fight that. I'll tell you something else that happens. I've been teaching for 37 years, doing this for 37 years. And when you teach a passage one way, and then later on you read it and you go, mm, I don't know if that's right. It's really hard to go back and admit you were wrong. It's really hard to go, I didn't handle this passage right. Here's where it is. I have changed my mind in 37 years on certain positions because I believe it's the truth. I want to know the truth. That's why we call our podcast Truth Quest, because we're on a truth quest. We want to be like the Bereans who receive the word of God with all joy, but search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And the Bible says rightly dividing the word of God and comparing scripture with scripture that we can know what the truth is. And so if you have been brought up in a family that teaches an aberrant teaching, and I've got to think you know it, that people have talked to you about it, if they're, if they're teaching you something that's aberrant to normal Christianity. If that's so, then evaluate it. And don't be like Fonzie who was afraid to say he was wrong. Remember that? And I realize this is an ancient reference of happy days, but Fonzie was like, I was, I was, you were right. He couldn't say he was wrong. And so people are like that. 
You'll point out the truth like Jesus did, and they're like, nope, nope, it's not right. They'll stick to their guns to the death, even though the Bible teaches clearly that what they believe is wrong. I respect someone who says, I used to believe this, but now from the scriptures, I believe this. I used to teach that you could lose your salvation and then I taught you can't lose your salvation and now I'm in the middle ground. I'm like, I don't know. People say, can you lose your salvation? I don't know. Where is it? I lost it. I can't find it. I, you can't leave your salvation. I don't know. I lean towards you can't because of certain scriptures, but I want to know what the truth of the Bible says and every once in a while you got to go, I got a shelf for, for, for further information. I need more stuff to be able to figure this one out because we're all on a truth quest we want to put the belt of truth on. We, but Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So we want to know what that truth is. And it would only be arrogance that would say, I don't have anything wrong. Well, I'm glad you admit where you're wrong, Pastor Robert, because I don't have anything wrong. Well, we would all have arrogance then. Instead of saying, I want to know what the truth is and I'll look into the scriptures to see because God's word is truth and we are set free by truth. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we are able to take a look at your word and to see these scribes and Pharisees quote scripture in their aberrant position and as far as we know, never repent from it. Even though Jesus proves to them that there was resurrection in the Pentateuch. And Lord, help us. When we believe something that is aberrant, that we would make sure that we search the scriptures. Just because it's aberrant doesn't mean it's not true. But we want to know what the truth is, that we can stand on the word of God. And Lord, I pray for those who may be ignoring a body of scriptures to be able to hang on to one passage that says what they have been taught or wanted to say. And I thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.